Today's episode of Digging and Crates is brought to you by Your Slip Mat, one of Europe's leading custom slip mat suppliers. Offering HD full colour designs, the mats are unique to you and a perfect companion for DJs, record labels, brands and vinyl heads. Dispatch within three days with a money back guarantee, Your Slip Mat are the best choice for slip mats. And what's more, there's an exclusive discount for Digging the Crates listeners until the 12th of August. Just add the code DTC at checkout for 10% off. Go to yourslipmat.com to get yours. Digging the Crates. This is Digging the Crates. I'm Vice Beats. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the podcast, brought to you by The Find. An aspect of Digging the Crates is that the interviews are from various times. This time round is an interview which was recorded in 2016 during the massively long-awaited listening party and release of Jay Diller's The Diary, an album that our guest fought to see released for over a decade. We were lucky enough to capture a moment of celebration tinged with sadness. This is an emotive and reflective interview with a man who was a key member of Stone's Throw, an integral part of J. Diller's success and a leading light in the creation of the J. Diller Foundation and Page Records. Alongside his tireless work for Marjukes and the Yancey family, today's guest also runs Now Again Records, is a keen writer, record collector and collaborator with Madlib. This is Digging the Crates with Egon. And now for our feature presentation. All right, here, here we go. This is Egon with my man Vice. Ethan, thank you for joining us. Absolutely happy to be here. Today really is a landmark in not only Dilla fans' music collection and things that are going to be taking place after this point, but I mean, it's a landmark for yourself with the diary. Oh, absolutely. Being being entered into the world finally. I mean, why did you choose this time for this to be released? I mean, was there a specific reason for this date, this time, location, and so on? Well, you know, uh, my, my, my friend, Johan Kugelberg, who I publish books with, um, and I do so very sporadically, but I mean, trying to function at a very high level in the publishing of, you know, printed matter, which is not easy. He always reminded me of the three conceptions of, of, of ancient Greek time, Kronos, Kairos, and Chaos, which is like the right time, the wrong time, the perfect time. I forget, there was like, there was some weird way where like, you know, everything was always the perfect time, you know, when he turned in the book. Yeah. Right. And um, I always got a little bit frustrated about that because I was like, no, there's an orderly time that we have to follow, <laughs> right? I guess chaos rebels against that. Um, this record, I think, just came out when it was ready to come out. You know, you, mm. I thought three years ago that it was going to be like an imminent release, which is why I was putting out those 12 inches on page A then. Yeah. I just figured, oh, we'll put out a 12 inch, we'll announce this record, we'll put the record out in six to eight months. And of course that didn't happen. Um, but still, I mean, I, I feel like now is the right time yes. for this record. Big Dilla, PR, Blau, here it is. Uh. Yeah, it's for you. Uh. Hey, hey, remember me? Take a look, baby. Yes, it's your ex, he off the hook, ain't he? I'm doing my thing. Thanks, you did me a favor I'm through with the gangs and straight with the silly behavior And I knew it was over, I was hoping it worked 
see I can't go to work when you go on berserk. You be digging the crates with Vice Beats. The collaboration between PJ and, and Mass Appeal, I mean, how did that come about? I mean, was that a conversation that you started your side or was that on Mass Appeal's front or how did that come about? I've known Peter Bittenbender, who is one of the founders of, of Mass Appeal, like the label and, and media company, for a long time now. And uh, we worked together on previous projects when I was at Stone's Throw. And one thing was sure is that he was a Dilla fan. And, uh, and Peter and I have talked over the years about projects that we could do together, including the projects I do with Madlib, like the Freddie Gibbs and Madlib record, uh, Pinata. And um, with this record, he was... He was very convinced that Nas was the right person to get behind it. And Nas, of course, is a founding partner in this mass appeal enterprise as well. And I thought to myself, you know, we don't have a spokesperson for this record. We have this guy who's an absolute fan. We have Sasha Jenkins from Mass Appeal, the magazine, who gets the cultural import of all this. And they're all in the same room with an infrastructure and they're willing to give favorable terms to Dilla's estate and license the album from them rather than attempt to do anything shady or backhanded. And I felt like it was a, a risk worth taking if we might be able to do all of these things correctly. And it's all been working out really well, and Nas has gotten behind the record. And I think that that's something that would probably have pleased Dillard. He was a fan of Nas's. And for Nas to be going out there and using you know, his fan base to be the people who communicate this record, to use his star power to shine some light on Dilla, this album, and his legacy, I think is a really important thing. With PayJ being involved again, I mean, obviously there's been a, a huge gap in time for PayJ releases. I mean, is how does that work on, a, on more of a creative level? I mean, is this something where... AJ is now going to be the the imprint moving forwards. Yeah, basically, I, the way the way I looked at it was rather simplistic. I had run Stones Throw for many years, and so I saw the way that it was for a record company owned by one person to put out records by a bunch of hopefuls who needed the infrastructure of a label, the financial support, and um, you know the logistical support. And in exchange, they had to sell their master recordings to the label so that the label would invest in them. And then, working with Madlib and seeing the way that Madlib looked at Sun Ra's trajectory, Sun Ra being, of course, the legendary jazz musician who, before he was signed to any of the labels that he signed to in the 60s and 70s, had his own imprint, Saturn, which he kept active until his death, I realized, you know, there's a different way of doing this with specific artists who have a certain fan base and don't need the infrastructure of a label because I can create the infrastructure for them. I set up all of Stone's Throws distribution. I know the people that I can hire and I know that I can get a record ready and I can deliver it to a distributor and if necessary, I can entertain offers from bigger parties without being beholden to them. So that is what I wanted to do for Dilla's estate. I wanted to give them the wherewithal to put out their own music when they wanted to, to make a toy, to make a t-shirt, to make a poster, to make a photo print, and never have to actually sell anything. And it's something that the attorneys that work for his estate believe in too. And one of the main attorneys, Sheila Bowers, and I have worked together for many years, dating back to the JLib project when she represented Stone's Throw, which she still does. And she was able to help realize that goal. And that means that when we partner with a company like Mass Appeal, you know, we give them the rights to work this record. They partner with us from on it, but they don't own it. And that's the same thing with, with all of Dilla's 
intellectual property at this point. Mike, you mentioned the, the vinyl figure and sort of the, the various things that you guys have brought out in different forms. They all seem almost kind of handcrafted and quite niche in their approach. And, but at the same time, it's Dilla who's known by pretty much every hip-hop head across the globe. I mean, right. is, is there an, an intention in there for it to still feel independent or is it just kind of how it how it comes about and that's not thought of. Well, I mean, let me put it to you this way. I want to make the best possible quality item, whatever it is. If it's a t-shirt, if it's a toy, if it's a turntable, if it's you know a, a ring, a pendant, anything that we think might be something that befits Dilla's legacy. I obviously haven't thought of too many things that are befitting of his legacy because I haven't really done many. Um, there's been a lot of things done in his name and likeness that I've had nothing to do with. Let them be judged as they may. But I feel like the things that I've done um, have striven for a level of excellence. But I'm doing it all on my own with a couple people that I work with and they're believers too. So it ultimately is very independent. It's just that we want the level of quality to be of an absolute high level. Um, and I think that the people who are Dilla fans who might not care like at all about any of the other work I do, these box sets, archival reissues I do for Now Again or the silk screened records I do with Mad Lib, I think when they look at a, a Dilla toy and it looks and feels and is as cool as, as the ones that we made are, well, then they're like, yeah, I, I can get down with that, you know? It doesn't seem pretentious. Yeah. It doesn't seem precious. It just seems true. Yeah, yeah, it's in high quality. You know, you're going to make a toy that's a little goofy in and of itself. It better be the best toy possible. seems very obvious that it was a turning point in so many different ways both positive and negative right I mean have you got a project that you feel is is the best output from Dilla or your favourite project to this point including the new offering yeah yeah of course um, 
I mean, Donuts is my absolute favorite that I was a part of. Um, that's that's the type of record that I can listen to on repeat over and over again, and I can uh, I can leave on the shelf for six months, and I can go back to and find out something new about it. And you know, bear in mind, I was there while that record was being created. So, you know, I've been thinking about this album since before it was a commercial release. Now, Donuts is absolutely my favorite, but I think Rough Draft is my second favorite just because as much as I like the diary and you know and I'm, I'm so happy to have been a part of getting it out and keeping this part of his legacy intact you know Dilla wasn't here to oversee the final part of it you know and, and so I could never listen to this record in the same way that I listened to like you know those two records which I think are absolute masterpieces now, don't get me wrong I think Dilla had other masterpieces too you know including the stuff he did with Slum Village but it just so happens that Donuts and, and Rough Draft two records which he did completely on his own I think are, are, are my favorites the creative process seems like it changed quite a lot when he moved cities is it the case that albums like The Diary did it feel like there was something happening at that point I mean was was there kind of a tangible buzz could you kind of feel that there was a project or a movement being created or did it just did it just feel like there was constantly things happening it wasn't obvious that there was specific projects being made you mean between the two cities between yeah. Detroit and California and Los Angeles I should say yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Dilla was you know doing a certain thing in Detroit when he was working on the you know these MCA projects, both what the album that became known as the Diary and the Frank and Dank record for MCA. But I, I think that you know his vision of California opened up a bit after he realized that he could collaborate with a, someone like Madlib. Um, you know, and of course there were other people out in California that he wanted to collaborate with too. Common was moving to California, for instance. And I never really thought about the split in the uh, creative style of, of, his, of his output until much after the fact. But now, of course, I can listen to the stuff that he did before the move and the stuff that he did after the move, and especially the stuff that he did after he began collaborating with Madlib in the same city, exchanging music back and forth in real time not through the mail, but in person, like feeling each other's energy in person as they're exchanging ultimately CDs and playing music to each other. And I think that there was a, a heavy influence, at least on donuts from the California period. It seems to me as well that, you know, the diary record and the J-Lib record and rough draft for that matter could only have been made in the relative seclusion that Detroit offered him, where he was a singular force without anybody like Madlib to really um, like butt creative heads with. You've been working with um, the Diller State for a decade, now, right? Or, or be yeah. before that as well. But I mean, your path seems very different with now again. I Absolutely. Mean, do you do you find yourself wanting to move into hip hop again, or because it seems seems like sort of the Stone Throw era is quite separate to where now again's gone oh so. absolutely i mean look i did stone's throw because i believed in this vision that peanut butter wolf was able to articulate with a few releases in the late 1990s and i believed that him signing madlib and at the same time focusing on the roots of hip-hop um, was very important and that his belief in the creative art integrity of the artist uh, him or herself was 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 the way to go forward and I also believed that I had enough experience even in my youth to function ethically in a field that um, you know was shady to say the least now um, that doesn't mean that that's colored my per perception of hip-hop I just have always loved 
archival projects and reissues and music from different genres and eras as much as I've loved hip-hop, at least since I was 16 or so. Now, my saving grace, I think, and what keeps me from just doing stuff that's like, you know, more readily, you know, pushed to like, you know, uh, the, the, the background of the current musical discussion is that I never stopped working with Madeline. And ultimately, the reason I moved out to work at Stone's Throw is because I believed in Madlib, and I still believe in Madlib's singular vision. Now, Madlib and Dilla had a joint vision, and I believed in that too, but I believe in Madlib's vision. So I dedicate an extreme amount of time to working on projects with Madlib. Um, like I said, the label that we have together, Madlib Invasion, all the stuff that we do together there, the projects that we develop, the tours that we do, the talks that he does, the endorsement deals that he does, all that stuff. I believe in that, and that's what I help do. I help sustain Madlib's career, and I do that as his partner, record company, and as like a manager. Um, so I, I, I get a lot of that too. As the same time that I can do archival projects and, and publishing man, uh, cat administration and, and catalog management. So, do you within yourself have a have a specific genre that you say you're most passionate about? Um, well, you know, the first music I fell in love with was hip hop. And, like, the style of hip-hop that a person like Madla makes or a person like Dilla made is my absolute favorite style of, of, of hip-hop. There's very few people making music like that anymore. And without, you know, seeming like the old guy in the room, you know, like, I, I find myself much more intrigued by, like, world rock from the 60s and 70s. So whether it was, like, you know, music made in Iran or Zambia, Nigeria, Indonesia, India, I'm very intrigued by that. Germany, even. Um, you know, like the kraut rock scene is, is, is monstrous to me, and I'm always discovering something new from it. So I listen to a lot of rock music, I listen to a lot of funk music, and I listen to an, uh, probably an extreme amount of jazz from all type parts of the world. Um, while at the same time understanding that my knowledge of this music came from this specific style of hip-hop that Madlib and Dilla, of course, epitomized. Where do you see your musical path going? Do you, do you have a long-term... Are, are there are there aims left? I mean, yeah. I'm assuming there are. But well, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, like I. Uh, well, first of all, like you know, I believe in Madlib, and like you know, one of the main reasons that I stopped making music, uh, you know, like trying to produce, I should say, the main reason I stopped DJing and doing all that is because I wanted to be able to dedicate more time to the back end administration of working with a person like Madlib at that different stages in his career, because I believe a person like Madlib can have a sustainable career for decades, not just you know a moment. And so um, I love Madlib's music, okay? Um, and then I love this other music, and my vision for it is all about what I love, right? So I'm just going to try to find ways to push it forward. I believe that the music industry is declining, and so I'm trying to create more cyclical, sustainable business models where all parts of the business feed into each other. Um, so I'm working on subscription services, and Madlib, Jeff Jank, and I have a web retail shop where we use, you know, uh, cats to retail all of the projects we put out. So when Freddie Gibbs does a record like Cocaine Parties in L.A. and we hand Silkscreen 800 copies of the record, we don't go through a distributor. We sell them directly ourselves, and we fulfill them with our distribution partners. I mean, these are the types of things that I see for myself in the future, and I still think that I can pull off, even though the music industry is declining. And I think that there's an extreme amount of music that's not been archived yet, which is also fun for me to do. Look back into the past, into a different musical scene, and say, what is about, about this scene, if anything, intrigues me? And what can I do to continue its propagation in the modern day? Yeah, I mean, 
There's certain years when it seems like it becomes a bigger deal than others. But I mean, right. how how is it in the US? I mean, is it are you finding the vinyl is it as big a resurgence there as it's becoming here? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, for a long time, people were talking about um, you know vinyl is on the upswing, and I always thought that that was laughable because. In the 90s and in the early 2000s, especially when I started working at Stone's Throw, I was selling so many copies of like the average 12-inch single that it was it was ludicrous to me to hear someone say that vinyl was was making a comeback. Like I was like, well, I'm never going to sell 20,000 copies of a piece of vinyl again. But at this point, it is possible to sell 20,000 pieces of the right piece of vinyl. I mean, we sold over 20,000 pieces of the Mad Lib and Freddie Gibbs Pinata album. So it is possible to do that. Now, that, 10 years ago, would have been very difficult. A record like Donuts Notwithstanding, it would have been very difficult to, to do those numbers. And so, yeah, I am seeing that. And all while, all the while, although I'm seeing an oversaturation along the, like the lines of something like Record Store Day, where too many of the major labels are putting out releases that probably don't need to be put out or put out again and are taking up valuable shelf space on a day like that, I still think it's uh, intriguing and inspiring when like a record like this Dilla Diary record can be accepted as a record store day title and can be given committed shelf space by retailers because of that. You've traveled around the world with music. I mean, have yep. you found that there's a particular place that you feel feels the I guess, kind of more soulfully linked to with, with the musical creativity and the forces going. I mean, you mentioned all, all the elements with sort of the side folk and rock and that right. side of things. Is there there's somewhere that you felt most connected to on your travels? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, I I, I love America and I, I love the various cities in America. I mean, you know, it's a huge country, and you know, we can have disparate scenes that pop up in different cities, which are so far removed from each other that even though they're in the same country, you know, they feel like different parts of the world. And so I, I love seeing the difference in the way that people, you know, react to the music I love in a place like New Orleans or Miami, which is far flung from Los Angeles or New York, um, which are the two cities I'd probably spend the most time in. I find San Francisco to be intriguing but challenging. Um, so I think that there's a, a great amount of, of respect that I have for my own country and the different cities and scenes that spring up there, these micro scenes, if you will. 
Um, you know, that said, I've had an opportunity to go all over the world, and I found that of all the places that I've gone, the places that I, I, I always want to go back and that I feel most enthused by is Japan. It's, it's, it's just one of those inexplicable things that the, the Japanese fans, when they're into something, are so into it. And they, they have such a catharsis when they're listening to the music that they're into. And they're so willing to be you know, led on a journey that might not start or end where they think it's going to start that um, you know, it, it's really, really hard to top. Really. Special place. Especially Tokyo. When you say that, I mean, you're saying about journeys. Have you got sort of a specific thing that you can think of where you've seen that happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, there's been times where I've been in Tokyo and it's, you know, seven o'clock in the morning and J-Rock is, you know, playing doubles of James Brown's Give It Up and Turn It Loose. And I can see the sunlight coming in through the darkened windows in the club and there's still people there. And everybody's happy. I mean, like, yeah, like, I mean, moments like that are, are they're, they're almost not, not infinite, but I've, I've had a lot of great moments. That said, I've had a lot of great moments here. I mean, you know, London can be a tough city. But London can be a very welcoming city, and some of my favorite, you know, like music ever has been made in London. I mean, talk about like the pinnacle of '60s psychedelic rock, um, which I would have loved to see. But um, you know, I had amazing moments in, in London with Dilla. I mean, where are you going to see like a night that goes from like you know a funk and soul and disco 45 set to like you know this weird 80s electro stuff to like Madlib and Dilla coming out and rapping and then J Rock wrapping it up with like a classic hip hop breakbeat set? I mean, we we we've had some magical moments here in London, and um and and I remember like impressions of them all. I don't necessarily remember specifics. Have you had a favorite night as a DJ? That Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the last night that we played in this bar that we did in Los Angeles called Star Shoes, which was on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Coangan, it was a free party that started on a, on, a, on a Friday and moved to a Saturday. We did it for seven years there, and at the very end of it, you know, the the, the bar was shutting down. And I remember DJing there, and I remember looking out, and this is a place where like Dilla used to show up, and Madlib used to show up, and me and Miles from Breakestra and Cut Chemist used to play, and we had guests from all over the world, DJ Muro from Japan, and DJ Shadow, and all types of people. It's where I met Flying Lotus. He came to the club and asked if he could be my intern. He was like 18 years old. And um, I remember that last night, I was walking down the hill from my house, and I saw this pickaxe that had been sitting on my property since 1922, and I was thinking to myself, when the night ends, I'm going to break one of the walls. And I carried the pickaxe with me, and at 6 in the morning, I remember the last thing that before the lights went off, we were just smashing the walls down. It was crazy, and what's even crazier is that one of the guys that was there from this group called MRR ADM, who I put out in our big part of like Gaslamp Killers uh, upbringing, uh, musical upbringing. One day, one of them showed up in my office, and he had a chunk of the wall that he'd <laughs> saved from that night. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And he gave it to me, and for years I had it on my desk. I guess you don't really realize things that are going to become iconic at certain points. I, I remember this one, one, one point where we were doing a tour in Toronto and we made a tour shirt and it was the mad villain, um, J-Lib, so Mad Lib and Dilla, Mad Lib and Doom, um, me, J-Rock, and Peanut Butter Wolf. And we had tour shirts made, not many, 
but we had some tour shirts made. And at the end of the last show in Toronto, I did a lobby call for everybody because I was always working with the tour manager if I wasn't tour managing myself. And everybody's like, why are we in the hotel lobby? And I took out copies of the shirts and I said, I want everybody to autograph this. And I got them all to sign these shirts. And I kept two of them and I don't even know what I did with the other ones. And the other day I was looking into like a box that I had at my house and I saw this shirt <laughs> and it was signed by everybody and it was just a moment in time. And I, I, I would have barely thought about that moment. I mean, your house must be just a treasure trove. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of weird stuff in there. Like, it's not not huge, so I don't keep a lot of stuff. But I have, like, you know, very special mementos and keepsakes that came from these, like, you know, beautiful relationships that I was able to forge because they all know that I'm a collector of things. So, you know, Dilla gave me the copy of Tintin that he used for American Graffiti, and he personalized it to me. And um, I have that at my house, and, like, you know, every once in a while I pull it out, and I listen to it, and I look at it, and it's the record he sampled. I mean... It's crazy, you know? It's like uh, little little moments like that make it all worth it because, it, like I said, it takes me back to the moment um, and it's less of an impression at that point and it's like I'm immediately back to where I was when I was was doing that thing, whatever it was. That's awesome. Thank you. What's to come for you? I mean, what have you got planned? Well, you know, I, I basically follow whatever direction Madlib wants to go. And of course, you know, I'm always, you know, trying to push him to do something different than he's done before. Um, but, you know, like he's back in the beat mode that he calls it. So he's making beats and that's incredible. I can't wait to see what comes out of that. And these collaborative projects that we've been working on in different ways to, you know, recontextualize him as a DJ. And of course, like my all my my my, uh, my my reissues that are coming together, you know, are really fun. Like I do subscription services now, and I find different ways to sell all these records, and I find that to be really intriguing. You know, I'm I'm hoping to find new ways to communicate the importance of this music through fans directly, and not try to rely on retailers to do my job for me, like a direct level of communication, whether that's a Madlib project or, like in this case, a Dilla project or some of these reissues. Egon, thank you for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. This was really fun. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Peace. To find out more about each episode, including the tracks played, go to thefinemag.com.